Hey there, this is Damien Blinkinsop. Welcome to another episode of the Quantified Body Podcast. Not a day goes past that we don't hear about oxidative stress in the news and interwebs and how it is shortening our lifespan or causing diseases like heart disease, diabetes, and cancer, and many more. Unless you've been living under a huge rock, you also know that antioxidants protect us from oxidative stress. And you most probably spend some of your dollars on antioxidants through healthy food choices you make in the supermarket or buying supplements. But how do you know if those dollars are well spent? Or if the time you spend thinking or reading about antioxidants rewards you with any real benefit? Today we look at biomarkers of oxidative stress and how you can use them to assess your health status and whether your efforts, such as making buying choices based on antioxidant content, are actually paying off. Today's guest is Dr. Cheryl Burdett, president of Dunwoody Labs, a lab that specializes in cutting-edge labs for integrative medicine and a practicing physician at Progressive Medical Center, the largest center for integrative medicine in Atlanta, U.S., She is currently lecturing on nutrition and cancer at the University of Bridgeport and has a number of published studies in the journals Alternative Medicine Review and Clinical Chemistry. As Education Director at Dunwoody Labs, she is involved in clinical trials of different nutritional products, as well as development of functional testing profiles, and an area she has looked at in particular in this role is oxidative stress. That's why I was really excited to get her on the show today. To get the show notes, the transcript of the interview, and the MP3 download of the show, and all the links to everything we talk about in the show, go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash episode four. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Cheryl Burdett, thank you very much for coming on today. It's a real pleasure to have you on. I was recently at a conference where I saw you highlight the importance of oxidative stress biomarkers for working on both diseased conditions and aging. Could you give us a quick overview of why you feel it's an important area of biomarkers and where it's most useful? Absolutely. I think that the reason that these are important biomarkers are because they help us to answer some of the critical questions that we're looking at when we seek out preventative medicine and when we're trying to slow an aging process in the body or to turn down the inflammation of a pathology. And so oxidative stress markers, simply put, ways that you can measure antioxidant status in the body. And you're hard-pressed to find somebody out there who hasn't heard that antioxidants are good for us, that they're in fruits and vegetables, that these are the things that protect our DNA and lower our risk of cancer and heart disease, and really the major players out there in terms of pathology. However, for some reason, they're not routinely done. And so, for example, a marker called 8-OHDG, 8-hydroxy-2-diaguanosine, long name, but basically It's a simple first morning urine. It tells you if there are too many free radicals in your body, and it tells you if the DNA is being damaged. And when we go to the research and see, well, how predictive is this marker? How strong is this marker? If we look at the peer-reviewed research in the past five years, you find about a thousand clinical trials that, that show that it's predictive for things like cancer and heart disease. 
yet for some reason it's not routinely done yet. And so that was a, another part of my drive for starting the lab was to be able to take these well-researched biomarkers and make them more available to people so that we can use them to help predict health and help have better outcomes. So you mentioned uh, cancer in particular there, but where are the main areas where most of the research has been done? I also saw you talk about things like neurology, neurological conditions, but where would you say like the brunt of the research that's already existing has been done relating these two issues and things we can track? So when we talk about oxidative stress, it will depend on which marker we're speaking to. And if we're talking about 80-HDG, then that one probably you most often see that in terms of a risk factor for cancer. The higher it is, the more damage there is to your DNA. And the more damage there is to the DNA, the more the increase of chance of a cancer occurring. So, for example, we can think of cancer as a seed. And not every seed will always sprout. Not every seed will always produce a plant. However, if the environment is right around that seed, this is what allows it to grow. So if 8-OHDG is high, that's an environment that's more favorable to a cancer growth. If we can see it's high, then we can do something about it. We can increase antioxidants in our diet. We can use certain nutraceuticals to help with that. But this is not the only oxidative stress marker out there. There are also markers for how damaged our fats are in addition to DNA or how damaged the mitochondria is or how damaged proteins are. And so when we're looking at the body of neurological evidence, now you look at a marker called F2 isoprostane. When this is high, it tells us about our fats being damaged. Well, the brain is 85% fat. The outside of a nerve is all made up of fat. And the membrane of every cell is made of fat. So if your fats are damaged, then you're more likely to have conditions where there is fat in the body, i.e. your central nervous system, your peripheral nervous system, as well as cellular. So in general, we see a lot of oxidative stress research around things like cancer, heart disease, neurologic conditions. And from there, you would pick and choose markers Certain ones will have certain strengths based on the tissue type and based on the condition. Uh Okay, so as I understand it, I mean, you've talked about lipid peroxidation and DNA damage markers there. As I understand it, there's kind of like two ways to look at this. There's the direct measure of oxidative stress and damage, which has already been done, which the two markers you've brought up, look at that. And then there's also reduced antioxidant status in the cells. Is that the correct way to look at it with coming from those two perspectives? Yes, absolutely. I would say that's spot on. Okay, great. So some of the other areas I saw that you're looking at, you have the antioxidant intracellular status and the enzyme assays. Could you talk about those a little bit and the context of their use? Absolutely. So glutathione is our major intracellular antioxidant. What that means is the antioxidant that's most preferred in the tissue. And so when we take in things like, for example, People might have heard of resveratrol from grapes that's in wine, and it's associated with longevity and what's called the French paradox. Even though they eat more fat, they don't get fat. And why is that? Well, because of this resveratrol. And so these plant-based antioxidants will often have the effect in the body of increasing our own production of glutathione. That's one of the more powerful ways that they work is to turn on our own antioxidant system. We can measure something like glutathione, 
to see if people have the right level of this in their cells. And now when we think about, okay, what is that associated with? Higher levels of glutathione are associated with a low risk of cancer, low risk of neurologic conditions. Glutathione is the major intracellular antioxidant for the liver. So it helps us to detoxify and keep up with toxic body burden from the environment and from chemicals on food, etc. It's also a highly useful antioxidant in lung tissue. So if it's low, you're more at risk for different um, respiratory conditions, and we can use it as a treatment. By increasing glutathione status in the lung tissue, you'll see improved respiratory outcomes, and you'll see decreased shortness of breath and a wide range of improvement. If you think about it, if every cell needs glutathione, then increasing the levels can help many, many things. Great. One of the things I was thinking about as you were talking about that, on this side, we have the resources, our capacity to fight oxidative damage. So with glutathione, for instance, you're looking at that. Does that necessarily mean that our DNA damage markers and our lipid peroxidation markers, there's actually going to be damage? Or can that also be if someone's had a very solid diet and they've lived a very healthy lifestyle with plenty of antioxidants, could those markers be high? higher than usual and would the opposite be true like would they have used up if they have some kind of chronic condition would they have used up a lot of those resources these anti like glutathione peroxidase so they would actually be lower and that would give you and that's how you use it you would actually use it as an indicator that there could be some chronic issue there because it's used up even if perhaps there's not lipid peroxidation or dna damage that's an excellent question so typically if you have high levels and good strong levels of glutathione you should see less damage in the system, less damage to your DNA, less damage to your lipids, and less damage to your protein. However, there will be times where, let's say, for example, maybe somebody has a chronic viral load and the infection is brewing, but it hasn't created symptoms yet. You can begin to see a depletion of glutathione before harm is done. And so it allows us to capture things early and then also to intervene so that we don't continue to slide into a state of disrepair. So on one hand, you would think, well, maybe if I'm low in this antioxidant, I would feel it. But for example, we measure things like cholesterol once a year for heart disease, and you don't necessarily feel it when that's increasing. The same could be true here. Your glutathione could be decreasing, and you might not have outwardly signs yet, but if we take time to look at it, we can capture this trend and we can treat accordingly. Right, right, right. And I think people who are interested in longevity and human performance, so whether it be in terms of brain performance or physical performance in terms of athletics or fitness and, and so on, with these markers, do you think there would be a useful thing to keep an eye on in those contexts also? Oh, absolutely. That's a great point that you bring up. So first of all, preventing pathology, but also optimizing function. And so because glutathione is the major intracellular antioxidant, it's critical to the part of the cell called the mitochondria. And uh, the mitochondria is the part of the cell that makes energy, or ATP. And so that ATP is what gives us energy, what gives us good performance, what gives us good muscle building, etc. So inherently necessary for optimizing performance as well. Mm -hmm. So there you're talking about, correct me if I'm wrong, are those the enzyme assays? So the superoxide dismutase 1 and 2 that look specifically at the mitochondria? Yeah, so superoxide dismutase 1 is in the cytosol, 
and two is the one specific to the mitochondria. And so the one specific to the mitochondria helps to improve function there, lets us know that the mitochondria is recovering like it should. And if we see that low, then we can choose therapies to increase that to know that we need to do more mitochondrial work. Okay, great, great. So these, it looks like you can actually kind of identify where different problems are. However, why is it that when we have oxidative stress in our bodies, it doesn't necessarily affect the whole body? Because you're talking as if there's like different parts of the antioxidant and oxidative stress systems that will potentially give different patterns. If you take all of the biomarkers, they'll give a different pattern depending on the chronic disease you have or potential issues you have or potentially your diet and antioxidants. Is that what you've seen in, in the labs that people can have kind of different patterns which can show you interesting facts and show you different paint different pictures or do you find it, it can be more or less across the board that there are problems? It depends on the marker. So the glutathione, you might have more ubiquitous issues because again, that's the antioxidant everywhere. But yes, you're absolutely right. Certain markers are more associated with certain conditions. Like, for example, that's why I chose to not do a total superoxide dismutase and tease them out because ones in the cytosol of the cell have more association with particular conditions like ALS, whereas the one in the mitochondria has more association with fatigue and cancer. And so if you're just lumping them all together, you won't get that picture. Right, right. Perfect. And I saw, when I was looking at this, I saw there's probably at least 30 biomarkers currently available in labs related to oxidative stress in some areas. Why is it that you chose these particular ones? I noticed that some of the areas you haven't looked at include uh, protein oxidation. You mentioned these a little bit, protein oxidation and nitration, the reactive oxygen species assays, and RNA damage and repair. Could you talk a little bit about what you see the merits are and why you made the choices you did about the markers you chose? Yes, I think the first thing is I wanted markers that were extremely well-researched. So again, like that 80HDG, if we just look at the past five years, over a thousand clinical trials with that marker in terms of um, predicting oxidative stress and free radical load. So that was my first consideration. Do they have a strong body of research? Is it, are they clinically relevant? And so I chose the ones that had the highest clinical relevance. And then, of course, as a lab, the second part is how reproducible are they? How stable are they? How much changes once it goes into the test tube from coming out of the body? So, for example, that F2 isoprostane, that is a lipid peroxide. That is a marker of how damaged fats are. And there are other lipid peroxides out there. People are probably some of the more common ones are things like T-bars or MDA. However, those are not produced in the body. So that the T-bars, RS, the RS on the end of that stands for reactive substance. And so it's an extrapolation that's done in a lab. It's a chemical reaction that's used to then say, okay, but we don't make T-bars inside of our system. They're not endogenously produced. It is an extrapolation of what's happening in the body. However, F2 isoprostane, we make. You, it comes to when you measure the blood, there's F2 isoprostane in it. And so it is a better marker because it's more directly related to pathology and symptoms. And so two things for me, how evidence-based is the marker and then how reproducible is the marker as well. So those are the things that I look to. A third thing is then... Is it unique? Does it bring us 
new information that we're not able to get. So as clinicians, one thing that you'll often notice is you'll go to the research, you'll read about something, and you'll think, wow, that's fascinating. I didn't know that that could be looked at. I didn't know that could be measured. So an example is an enzyme called diamine oxidase. That's something that we measure, and it's the enzyme that degrades histamine. Well, you can see if you have a lower level of that, you're going to be more at risk from anything that's histaminergic, meaning, yes, of course, hives, itchy eyes, runny nose, but also headaches and gut issues and and a whole host of symptoms can be made worse in a high histamine environment. So you read about this and you say, well, how interesting that would be to know my body's ability to break down histamine. But then you go to laboratories and you can't find it. So a lot of these things are very heavily researched in academia, but for some reason don't make the crossover to be available to the general public. So that's another focus for me as well, taking things that are highly researched and making them more available. Right, right. Well, I noticed one thing you've done is you seem to, correct me if I'm wrong, you have two different panels. So you've grouped a lot of the markers you've been talking about today. You've grouped them into one panel. So you take those all at the same time. Is that correct? I think you have a blood and a, a urine panel. Yeah, we have um, we probably have about 20 different panels that we offer. Some are blood, some are urine, some are saliva, some are even hair, and some are stool. It just depends on what the best specimen is for what you're looking at. But yes. Is this all on oxidative stress? No, we have an oxidative stress profile, a leaky gut profile that looks at zonulin and diamine oxidase and lipopolysaccharide. We have a neurotransmitter profile that measures things like serotonin and epinephrine and norepinephrine adrenal stress testing, thyroid testing, heavy metals. What I was trying to get at is, have you tried to simplify, because you were saying each marker should kind of contribute something which is unique to decision-making and and tracking and understanding status. So have you combined all into one oxidative stress profile, the markers we've been talking about today, or do you have two or more? It's a little bit of a tricky question because so many things can result in oxidative stress. But in general, the ones that are more intimately considered oxidative stress markers are on that profile. But from a clinical standpoint, you never have to order the entire profile. You can order single analytes. That is something that is more appropriate for that patient. Let's say you do the entire profile first and only one thing is abnormal. Well, for follow-up purposes, now you can just run that one thing so that it's less expensive and more targeted to that patient. However, There are a couple of other markers that might get to the question of oxidative stress that are on different profiles, like on my cardiovascular profile, oxidized LDL. And so that is definitely a marker of oxidative stress, and it's the truly bad cholesterol. So people are taught that LDL is the bad cholesterol, but it's once it's oxidized that that the whole story changes. LDL is taken up by the liver, and it's utilized in cell membranes and in the brain. But once it is oxidized, the liver can no longer recognize it. And that's when it starts to be moved instead into these plaques in our arteries. That does not occur until it's oxidized. That's definitely a marker of oxidative stress, but it's not on that profile. It's on the cardiovascular profile. And just to be clear, that's not typically available because we've all had um, cholesterol lab tests and it's pretty general to get your LDL and so on. But that's not a typical test to get. No, and it's a great example of what I'm talking about. Even journals like JAMA say that it is 17 times more predictive for heart disease than cholesterol itself, but yet it's not being routinely offered. The research is much stronger with an oxidized LDL, and 
it would give you different treatment options too because if we're trying to reduce the LDL, which is the opposite of oxidizing, oxidizing is when it's charged by a free radical, reduced is when you have antioxidants to accept that free radical. And so if we're trying to reduce it so it doesn't become sticky and doesn't become a plaque former, well, then now you're going to use different treatments than just lowering the overall level. You're going to add more CoQ10. You're going to add things like sulforaphane from broccoli sprout. It improves our ability to treat these things too. That's great. So who today is actually using these? When they come to Dunwoody Labs, what sort of people are actually using these markers and how are they using them? Like you mentioned, some people use just one marker or do some people use a whole panel. So what kind of trends do you see at the moment? Who's using what? Because we're a laboratory, you have to have a physician's orders in, in order to get to the testing. So obviously doctors are the people using them, but more specifically, the type of doctor that tends to be ordering these are what I would call an integrative physician, practicing integrative medicine. And these are people that are combining things like pharmaceuticals or standard of care, but adding to that, adding lifestyle interventions, adding vitamins, adding supplements, adding these other pieces. And so these are typically people that have seen limitations in standard of care. And so they're looking for more cutting-edge biomarkers to match their more cutting-edge therapies. Great. Thanks for that. Are there any particular, I know, any trends you've seen at all in a type of doctor? So you said integrative medicine, but I don't know. Are there different areas of the U.S. which seem to be working more on this? Do you work internationally? Are there specific cases like you're seeing a lot of people using it for cancer or for other chronic conditions? In terms of areas of the country... Interestingly, I would have had a different answer 10 years ago. There were more pockets where you were seeing it, like we might expect, maybe uh, more West Coast, maybe a little stronger up in New England area. But really now, it's permeated much more than just kind of the periphery of the country. Just people everywhere want good medicine. And good medicine demands that we think about lifestyle, that we think about diet, and that we look for better answers because nobody out there would say that we have the best answer to cancer, heart disease, or even the common cold yet. So there's a lot of area where we still need to dig deeper. We need better answers and we need better treatment. And so I'm finding that really it's not just pockets of the country, but it's everywhere and it's international as well. So we have associations with labs in South Africa, England. So really, people are demanding better answers to health problems. So we've talked about a few areas where there's a lot of research. Which areas do you think these kind of markers would be very promising or potentially you're kind of experimentally or others are experimentally using them for treatment, but the research isn't strong enough and we kind of need more research to strengthen up our opinions there and the clinical evidence? These are applicable to many areas of research. And the reason for that is because so often, the way we have defined conditions is to say, what is the condition? And that's important. Absolutely. We need to know a diagnosis. So, for example, why do I not feel like myself? Well, I have a condition. I have a diagnosis of depression. And then the way that's approached is to say, well, in depression, we know that serotonin is low. So we'll give a medication that increases serotonin. However, it misses a whole piece of the puzzle. And that piece of the puzzle is that even though there's depression and serotonin is low, why is the serotonin low? 
And so it turns out that an environment that's very high in oxidative stress that has too many free radicals will be an environment that makes it harder for serotonin in the brain to be made. And so in research, they've often been focused on here's a medication, now does it make serotonin go up, rather than saying, well, what are these other pathways, what are the other things that are influencing this level of serotonin? So we're seeing more and more studies wanting to look at underlying cause, measuring things like oxidative stress markers, measuring things like gut health to see patterns for the process that is causing the diagnosis. Is there a process of toxic body burden, nutritional deficiencies, inflammation, oxidative stress, or mental-emotional stress that's contributing to this? Right, right. So it sounds like you really see that there's a lot of potential across the board, really, of all sorts of applications which haven't yet been explored fully in the research. Correct, yep. So in the conference where I saw you, you talked a lot about the link between mitochondria function and methylation function and oxidative stress. Could you talk a bit about how they're related and how one can influence the other? Absolutely. So methylation is a very complicated topic because it's not like there's one site in the body that's methylated. We have methylation of DNA, we have methylation of enzymes, we have and some things that will increase methylation in one place will decrease methylation in another. You might find something that upregulates uh, methylation in the liver, but can downregulate methylation in the brain. So it's complicated and it gets very tricky to identify that singular pathway and then modulate that accordingly. However, we know that there are broad strokes, and then we know that there are, again, this process that can influence changes in methylation. So, for example, high oxidative stress will impact the body's ability to methylate appropriately, whether or not that's hypo or hypermethylation. You'll see improvements with that when we lower this burden of oxidative stress. So, for example, one of the things that is really starting to be understood more about autism is they have a lot of problems with methylation. This will make it difficult to turn on neurotransmitters. However, that same problem with methylation makes it difficult to eliminate toxicity from the body. And so what you see is that there's often an insult of oxidative stress that skews the methylation, and it's this one-two process that then causes worse outcomes. And so if we can look and see how much oxidation is going on, then this gives us another way to improve methylation in the body too. Great, great. Because that sounds a little bit like a vicious cycle. Once you have oxidative stress, it's negatively affecting methylation, which, as you said, it affects your ability to resolve uh, some of the issues in the body. Yes. Uh-huh. I haven't heard of this before. Is that something that is quite new or, is it, or unique to you? Or is it something that people are starting to talk more about? What kind of stage of development are these methylation versus or linked to oxidative stress is being discussed and researched? I think that you see hints at this back even a decade ago, but really this deeper level of understanding and how intimately intertwined they are, I would say that that's probably a little newer. And again, it gives us, when you speak methylation, you're talking about genetically, what people are measuring are these polymorphisms, these, these little snips, these little mistakes in the DNA pattern. And there's not a lot to do about it at that time. However, if we can improve the environment of oxidative stress, 
we can improve the ability for those damaged genetics to function better. So it gives us something very treatable to go after. Yes, that's great. And so as I understand it, mitochondria has a similar kind of vicious circle dynamic going on with it and oxidative stress as well. Yes. It's similar, right, correct me if I'm wrong, but the oxidative stress will damage the mitochondria and then the mitochondria will start to create more oxidative stress, which, you know, creates a negative dynamic. Absolutely. And so while I characterize that marker 80HDG as a marker for DNA damage, uh, what they're seeing in the research is that that damage in the DNA will also influence expression in the mitochondria too. So we can think about it as a marker for, for causing damage there as well. Okay, so looking at some kind of typical scenarios where you have been using these biomarkers and found them of the most use, where would you say they're very useful for assessment of status for help with diagnosis at the moment? Where would you mostly use them or mostly see that the types of tests people are most using it for at the moment in which kind of cases? Well, on one hand, in my ideal world, I would love to see most people looking at their markers of oxidative stress once a year. And the reason for that is because I find them to be highly more preventative in their nature than cholesterol ever thought of being, for example. So if once a year we could get an idea of antioxidant status in our system and know if our antioxidant level is keeping up with um, the damage on our body, this gives us a much better window into prevention. But otherwise, if we are thinking about them in terms of where is oxidative stress, what pathologies is oxidative stress most linked to, well, then I would say that, that what, the area where it shows up the most is probably cancer, heart disease, and things neurologic. Is that to assess status, like how bad it is? Is that kind of what you're trying to do with that? You're trying to assess the environment that that pathology is in. Is this an environment that's going to cause the pathology to flare more, or is this a an environment that's going to put us in a possibility of remission. Great. So it gives an indicator. So you mentioned there it would be appropriate to get these taken once a year. Does that vary per biomarker? Basically, how quickly do these change in values over time? So are there some markers that it's relevant to take more often? I mean, depending on the context as well. So for instance, someone who's just healthy and they just want to understand the level of oxidative stress for aging or performance purposes, like for optimum health, would it be most appropriate for a year because they don't really change that often? So if you're in a state of pathology, many pathologies can, can deplete, oxi uh, deplete your antioxidants. So that's going to cause them to change more frequently. If we're generally well, then once a year is probably enough because we're, you're not seeing huge shifts in the system. But anytime there's a pathology or a, that's advancing, then I would say you'd want to look at them more often maybe every three months to make sure that you are changing the environment so that the pathology doesn't continue to flare. To get a kind of handle on this, if you did an intervention, say you did a month intervention, would it be worthwhile redoing these biomarkers of oxidative stress test again? Or would you have to wait for three months because it isn't really enough time to assess any change? Some will change more quickly than that. But in general, to really get tissue saturated and to really change terrain you want to give the body it's more the body probably you want to give it a good three months to really have that opportunity as it's more like building a muscle that doesn't happen overnight right right and so are there any inaccuracies or how would you say confounders to this data for example do they vary a bit like cortisol can right throughout the day 
Does it vary for the days so that it would depend on what time of day? Are there any other confounders involved in how you collect the data that you have to be careful of? Yes, some can change throughout the day. However, if it's a marker that is susceptible to that, then we do things to control for that. Like we say, this one has to be drawn fasting in the a.m. before a certain time. So depending on the test, we'll do some things to adapt to that. However, if there aren't specific instructions in terms of collection, then know that those are ones that we found to be stable. And when we look at multiple samples throughout the day and throughout the week, that they are consistent. You mentioned also earlier that you've tried to choose the best, most accurate labs, which don't have issues with, say, they move out of the body. Because I know I've seen labs in the past where you can get them taken. And sometimes if they're not frozen immediately with the correct protocol, that can skew the lab values. And then you've got an inaccurate data. Are there any of these markers which require kind of a very careful protocol, which has to be followed? Or are these kind of like standard blood tests where you can basically just give the blood sample and as long as you get the blood sample in reasonable standard condition, it's fine? Um, so we have, we have checks for that too. So when we receive a sample, if it looks off for any reason, if it's hemolyzed or something of that nature, then we notify the clinic and we, uh, we reject the sample. So we don't run anything that we are suspicious of how it looks. But otherwise, we've tried to choose things that are pretty stable because just for that reason, that'll improve the validity. Now, some things, there is a timeline. And so many of them will have them shipped overnight or shipped with ice to help to preserve the quality of that specimen. And then we're very picky about on the R end on receiving how quickly those things get processed and even moved to a minus 80 refrigerator or a freezer in order to store these things in a way that they don't degrade. Right. That sounds like standard procedure rather than any of these markers having specific instabilities, which would mean it'd be more difficult. I think I'm thinking of TGF beta one and, and markers like that, which I may be wrong here, but I've had history of like the values being different based on the way they were, the blood was taken. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we try to do a lot around education. Um, every kit comes with very specific instructions that whoever's drawing it should follow. And so we try to do a lot around quality control. Right. So you have um, kind of leaflets and brochures explaining how it should be taken because these are getting drawn out in different places, right? Your samples. Uh-huh. Every tube or every draw comes with a set of instructions that says exactly how it should be handled. Okay, so at the conference, you talked about some specific interventions which may have an impact on somebody's markers. And I'd love for you to talk about those a bit. Like you talked about things like curcumin, alpha-liparic acid. Which interventions have you found to be effective against these markers and to effectively lower them or increase them in terms of the antioxidant status? In general, some of the things that I have found to, to most profoundly shift these markers of oxidative stress are nice bioavailable preparations, things like curcumins, curcuminoids, and those are compounds that come from turmeric. And when those are put with some, uh, with certain black pepper extracts, that really increases their plasma bioavailability and you see better shifts of the markers. Also, things like sulforaphane, which come from broccoli, that I've seen be quite helpful in terms of improving glutathione and lowering F2 isoprostane. However, the interesting thing about it is what's going to be the most effective for shifting the marker is going to be to treat the pathology, to treat the cause of what's going on. 
And so sometimes it's not an antioxidant at all, but figuring out there's an underlying infection and getting that under control or figuring out that there's some, some heavy metal toxicity and lowering the toxic body burden or figuring out that there's a particular nutritional deficiency and increasing that or figuring out that somebody's main reason for their oxidative stress is coming from a gut issue and treating that accordingly. So that can be one thing that's really nice about these markers. There's no profile out there that's going to measure every chemical and every bug and every exposure that we have, but you can see if it's doing damage to the body, and now you can track that to make sure you're getting improvement. Right. So have you seen scenarios where you talk specifically about pathogens and infections and, and metals where you've targeted those, removing those, and you've seen these markers improve without adding, say, curcumin or any other thing to help with the markers? Yeah, Lyme disease is a good example of that for two reasons. First of all, the infection itself is hard on the mitochondria. And then second of all, many treatments that are used for Lyme involve antibiotics and at fairly high doses and long term. So in terms of getting those up, treating the, the Lyme infection will help to improve some of the glutathione status and some of the mitochondrial status. So yeah, definitely. You see it all the time. So does alpha lipoic acid have an impact on the oxidative stress or is it more working around like removing heavy metals? So it's kind of working around the origin of the problem rather than the oxidative stress itself. itself. Things like alpha lipoic acid have so many different ways they work in the body that I think that, you know, that's the nice thing about it. On one hand, it is a nice, it's a gentle chelator, but it is a good chelator of metals. So it is going to lower toxic body burden. On the other hand, it's going to even just decreased glycation of food you eat, which is going to decrease oxidative stress on the body that way. It facilitates in acetylcysteine part of the peptide that makes up glutathione. It helps to pull that into the cell. So it helps to make glutathione in that way. It recycles glutathione. So that's another way it's going to reduce oxidative stress. So I think that that's some of the beauty of the natural therapies is they're not limited to just one mechanism by which they work. And that's why you see such um, good changes with things like that. Great, great. Thank you. We're coming towards the end of the interview now. There's one particular dynamic that I've seen discussed quite a bit lately is that there can be too much antioxidants. So I was, I was wondering if these biomarkers, some of them have a U-curve uh, or like an ending curve, I guess you'd call it also, where there's an optimum value. And if it goes too high, often people will look at in the media and the news, it will be like the more antioxidants you can get, the better, no matter how much you take. So Potentially, you know, you could take a ton of curcumin, for example. But can you see scenarios where you could be overloading the body with antioxidants and it would push it the other way and cause problems? For people who are potentially thinking about being aggressive with these kind of antioxidative stress uh, strategies, do you see that kind of dynamic in the labs? You can. Like, for example, there is a condition where if someone's missing the enzyme to recycle glutathione, and so that can build up and that can even cause certain pathology. However, it's hard to do on planet Earth. We're so assaulted by pollution and junk in the air and junk in our food that it's more difficult to overload in terms of the antioxidant piece of it. Now, on the other hand, I don't like, for example, that one of those markers we've been talking about, um, 8-OHDG, goes up when there's more oxidative stress. There isn't, to my knowledge, there aren't studies that talk about that if it's too low being a problem. But you could have an overload of an antioxidant causing issues elsewhere. It's just that 8-OHDG is not predictive on the low side for conditions. Right, I see. So it's kind of missing 
it's missing the DNA breakdown because you're keeping it low. Because as I understand, your ATOR HDG is a blood marker for damage that's taken place. Is there any way that you could have DNA damage taking place, but somehow you've suppressed that marker? Is that what you're saying? Well, I don't know that there are conditions that are associated. I don't know that it's bad to have no DNA damage. I guess what I'm saying. I don't know that. Yeah, well, it sounds like in general in the labs, you haven't seen any. It's better to have high antioxidant status on one side of the markers and low damage. And you haven't really seen any cases where that isn't the case. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm with you, though. We, we have to have some oxidative stress. I mean, that's what causes, you know, us to have improved performance with athletics. I mean, that's some oxidative stress that opens up our blood vessels. So, yes, it's absolutely uh, possible. But do you have I mean, you just mentioned athletic performance oxidation. Do you have benchmarks? Would you be able to tell a difference to someone who's been training too heavily, for example, or when someone who's not training, could you tell difference between someone who exercises a lot every week and, and someone who doesn't based on oxidative stress? Yes, because in general, even though exercise creates some oxidative stress, when someone is performing well, they will have better recovery. And so you won't see DNA damage. You won't see damage to the fats because those are more long-term. They're more kind of tissue markers, more of that long-term status. So what you could see is that someone's not recovering from that oxidative stress that the exercise is creating, and now those markers would start to go up. And I can think of a particular patient who was a triathlete, and she was not seeing improvement in her performance anymore, and she was having troubles with recovery. And when we got her oxidative stress markers down into more of a normal range, then her performance picked up again. Which markers specifically in that case were out of range? Her 80HDG was elevated mm -hmm. and her total glutathione was low. So you basically helped her to rebuild the glutathione. And why was that? Was she training too much? Or what did you link the reason for the 80HDG to be too high? Actually, interestingly, it was partially the training, but she ended up being one of those who had an underlying infection as well. And so when we got that infectious load down, her 80HDG came down, the marker of oxidative stress. Her performance went up, and we also saw an increase in her white blood cell count. I think you make a great important point there, because I think a lot of people are seeking, like when you try to push yourself to performance, whether it, maybe it's working extremely hard or it's like doing fitness and athleticism, if you see problems in your performance, it could well be that there's a tiny infection or other issue that's holding you back. So it's probably worth looking at these oxidative stress markers, and that might help you to, and then seeing a physician to see if uh, that can be resolved and you can get back to performance. So it's interesting that people should really be thinking about this if they're suffering in their performance or what they're doing. Absolutely. And you, you see it a lot that just the wear and tear of training is a big deal. And for example, athletes are uniquely susceptible to leaky gut all the time in flight, fight or flight and less time in rest and digest. And so they all have more, they'll have markers of, of leaky gut that are off. And then when you treat those, the oxidative stress improves as well. So we talked a little bit about how these markers aren't so widely available at the moment. What do you think are the main challenges to get through? What could be done to spread the use of these oxidative stress markers more? Education. I think that people understand that having good antioxidant status is protective and preventative. And so just the, the more we understand about them, I think the more motivated people will be to look at them. But the education that needs to happen for physicians as well. Now, in the States, part of it is the way that our healthcare system is structured in that our healthcare system says if things are for prevention, 
say they're given certain codes and these are less likely to be reimbursed by insurance companies. Now, as backwards as that seems, you would think insurance companies would be interested in prevention, but it's just not quite logistically the way it's set up at the moment. So education of patients, of physicians, and of our infrastructure too. Okay. So what kind of things do you think will help or that you are carrying out in terms of projects at the moment to improve the education? I know that you do a lot of conference talks. Yeah, absolutely out there at talking about these things. But that's another reason that Dunwoody Labs is so intimately involved with research because the way we're going to make our big breakthroughs are is to publish more, to get the data out there. And then when that happens, as we're able to validate these things more and more, they'll end up in clinical practice. And so unless we support this research, we're never going to see that happen. So I'm a big advocate of that. Uh, more training as well, increasing things like nutritional training in medical schools, all of that will be important to really seeing a shift. Great. Thank you for that. Now, looking towards the future, I know like the next 10 years, are there any areas you're looking forward to, like with excitement in terms of the evolution of these markers? Are there new markers that are going to be available, like new tests or anything interesting that's going to happen over the next 10 years that you can foresee that's going to be pretty cool? It's going to help us to see a lot more. Yeah, I think that what a lot of these markers that are coming out are helping us to realize is that I think before there was more of a focus to find a biomarker that was shifted by a drug. And if you had those two things together, a drug and a biomarker, then that was really the package that healthcare was looking for to sell, so to speak. However, I think a lot of these markers that are coming out now, what the natural consequence of them is, is that the real way you would treat them would be to change diet, to increase exercise, to make some of these lifestyle changes. So I think that we're seeing more and more emphasis on markers that let us know about how lifestyle is affecting us, and therefore more and more people will be motivated to change that. But beyond that, the second thing I'm real excited about is um, we're bringing on a sweet genetic testing, and this is just fascinating because now I can look at somebody's genes and I can say, based on your genetics, here are some of the functional markers that we need to look at once a year in you. So you can even individualize someone's testing workup based on areas of weakness. And you can say, based on your genetics, you should not take this medication because you're more likely to have these side effects or it just won't work for you. Or here's a botanical that makes the most sense for you based on your genetics. Here's some food interventions that make the most sense. So That sounds great for preventative health in particular. So what kind of timetable you're looking at for that? Is it five years or a lot of people get 23 and me today? Is that something you can use or does it need to be a lot more specific than that? I think that that's a great start and it gives you some information. But yeah, we're bringing on, um, you know, this genetic testing in the next month or two. Okay. Well, sure to hear. Yeah. Uh, Cheryl, thank you very much for your time today. It's uh, been a great chat and we've learned a lot about these markers and I look forward to seeing them have a great impact on the market. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at 
superquantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.